This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Radek Sikorski. Radek Sikorski is a former foreign minister of Poland, a former defense minister of Poland, and is now a member of the European Parliament. Welcome to the podcast, Radek. Hello. Right, let's get started. Um, I want to talk to to you, first of all, obviously, about about Poland. How would you, to a a non-Polish audience, describe the situation in Poland at the moment? What kind of state, what kind of government is is in, in office there? Well, we have a populist government, which uh, Freedom House, the American uh, NGO, which has for decades ranked countries, um, uh, unfortunately described as a, as a half democracy. And Poland has been slipping in the various international rankings of freedom of the press or, um, or perception of corruption. The last two elections were criticized by Odier, the, 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 the arm of the OSCE that uh, supervises elections, on the grounds that uh, the opposition didn't have equal access to state media and to state resources. Um, the elections were not stolen, but they were not fully democratic either. And we have a, a, a and this government has packed the uh, constitutional tribunal, which means that it's able to change the political system um, with ordinary legislation. And uh, the uh, uh, manner of selecting judges has been changed uh, to to give politicians uh, more influence on the appointment of judges. Uh, There have already been uh, many, many complaints to international bodies over a treatment of protesters, of uh, independent uh, lawyers, in the, uh, journalists, and so on. Um, so um, I'm afraid the tendency is towards a hybrid system like in Budapest or in Turkey. And how compatible is this half-democracy, as you refer to it, uh, with membership of the European Union, frankly? Well, uh, it's uh, this uh, current Polish government that agreed last year that uh, funds uh, should be linked to uh, performance in the area of rule of law, uh, which is correct, I think, because, um, uh, you know, some countries like Hungary have a huge number of, of disbursements of EU money um, questioned by OLAF, the anti-corruption body. And if you have a a judiciary that is not fully independent, um, that, of course, makes it easier for unscrupulous uh, businessmen or politicians to steal European money. And that's an interest of all of Europe's uh, taxpayers, that this shouldn't be so. Also remember that uh, the EU is based on mutual trust in one another's institutions. Polish courts are European courts, and this is not just a turn of phrase. They make judgments which affect European citizens and European companies. You know, 
disputes between EU citizens about custody of children, uh, disputes between Polish and uh, EU companies over contracts, um, European arrest warrants. You know, in the EU, we don't do extradition in which you examine the prima facie evidence. We do an automatic uh, uh, passing on of our citizens of, or, or other citizens because we trust one another's uh, um, prosecution and judicial authorities. Once you undermine that trust, uh, the system begins to break down. Well, as, as you know, there's a lot of uh, impatience, irritation, frustration in many quarters about the, the lack of a robust enough response by the European Union to deal with this situation. Do you, do you think that this is fair impatience, criticism, irritation, or is it as the, the EU can only do so much and has done whatever it can do so far and can go no further? Well, the EU is a confederation. Uh, it's not a federal state. There is no central authority. It's very difficult in a confederation to force a member to do what it doesn't want to do. I mean, we should decide whether we are accusing the EU of too much authority at the center or too little. Right. Because <laughs> both can't be true at the same time. Right. But what, how do you see the future unfolding, though? Are, are, are people like you in the, in the opposition uh, parties just waiting for the next elections, hoping they will not be rigged and that a new government can, can take office? I mean, this situation cannot go on forever, surely? Uh, well, number one, we, we will um, do our utmost to prevent the, uh, the government from uh, stealing the next election. Uh, their mismanagement of the economy... Uh, might be their Achilles heel. The first decision they made was to abolish uh, competitive examinations in the civil service. And you can, ima you can imagine why. <laughs> and they've, uh, they've appointed incompetence in uh, the public administration, in state-run companies, uh, and to places like uh, the central bank. And the results are beginning to come through. Poland, we all have inflation, but Poland's is the highest in the EU. Um, and, this, and the fact that we are not getting the, um, the wire transfers with the, uh, with the recovery fund also means that there is increased pressure on the Polish currency. And that has its infl inflationary effect as well. Um, and this is be uh, becoming a, an issue. Interest rates have started to rise. I wouldn't call it a, a, a crisis. I would call it a, a consequence. And, and how confident are you that the next elections will not be stolen, as you say? How confident are you? I'm confident that they will uh, continue to use uh, state media. They are also using, just like in Russia and in Hungary, the... Um, the Polish petrochemical monopoly to buy up private media where they purge the journalists and replace them for, with party hacks. So there'll be more of that. Um, there'll be more of, for example, bribing uh, local authorities and, and directing resources to those that vote for the ruling party. Um, but, you know, it's getting a little thin, all that, you know, that the, the, the government majority now hangs on some, on, on just a handful of pretty disreputable people. 
so, for example, in order to get their vote, they've uh, just appointed as, as deputy minister of sport a guy whose previous job was to s- sell uh, fake cures uh, <laughs> to sick children at $80,000 a shot. Gosh. Right. So these are the kinds of people we're dealing with. Poland is often mentioned in the same sentence, same breath as Hungary, uh, obviously, for obvious reasons. Do you see a discernible uh, strategy almost of, of authoritarian leaders in, in the European Union to, to band together and, not, and uh, to avoid being singled out and ostracized? Or are we slightly jumping the gun and being a bit too conspiratorial? Oh, no, no. Kaczynski and Orban uh, meet regularly and Kaczynski follows the Orban um, uh, playbook. <laughs> Um, for example, the, the business of taking over the Constitutional Tribunal and, uh, and the business of uh, uh, trying to take over um, independent TV. Unfortunately for Kaczynski, uh, the, the independent uh, TV station it happens to be American. Hungary <laughs> right. didn't have such a station, uh, which is why in Hungary there are no large independent media. This is not the case in Poland. Poland is a bigger country, you know, we have these large, uh, rich cities that are run by the opposition. Uh, The government is trying to deprive them of resources, but they're still there. Uh, And we still have the largest tabloid and the largest TV station is is not yet under government control. They would try to do that in in their third term. uh, And, you know, that's why it's so much worse in Hungary, because the populists have been uh, in charge there for longer. Should we be also uh, worried and concerned in the EU, certainly, about other member states, such as Slovenia, which has the presidency at the moment, or is that a different order of magnitude and the two should not be confused or conflated? Well, there, there are problems with rule of law almost in every EU country. You know, in Malta, we had murders of uh, investigative journalists. Uh, you know... In, U- in the UK, I remember the, 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 the front page of the Daily Mail with the title uh, Enemies of the People uh, about judges who dared to say that there was such a thing as, uh, as judicial review of uh, legislation. Yeah. You know, these, temp- these temptations to uh, cut corners uh, exist everywhere, I'm afraid. Right. Well, I promise we'll come to the UK and Brexit before the end of the conversation. Before we do, Radek, uh, I should point out to listeners who don't know that you are also uh, not just being a member of the European Parliament, uh, chairman of the Delegation for Relations of the United States. Uh, I know you go in that capacity, you're in Washington very often. Uh, what, what do you think the current state of EU-US relations are? Do you, do you buy into this narrative that there was a bit too much euphoria in Europe just after the, the Biden victory and now the kind of dust has settled, people have sobered up and the situation is not quite as, 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 as wonderful in terms of transatlantic relationship as, a, as people might have thought at the beginning? No, I think we have a, a sea change. Uh, President Trump called us, the European Union, FO, and was trying to run a two-front war, at least in the area of trade, with the European Union and with China simultaneously. You know, as a former defense minister, I generally think that a two-front war is not a good idea. And instead of that, we now have the Trade and Technology Council, which has actually already met in Pittsburgh, and which, um, uh, and there is great commitment on both sides. Uh, it's, uh, I've been advocating for it. 
to my mind, it's a recon reconstitution of COCOM, which is what we had during the Cold War, coordinating committee on export controls. Instead, it, but instead, this now covers uh, uh, technology investments, production standards, um, and the cyber uh, domain as well. So democracies are sticking together and um, setting minimum standards in their relationships with autocracies. This is a new thing and very promising. On the specific of the Trade Technology Council, you know, its critics certainly at the beginning dismissed it as yet another, another talking shop. I presume you don't agree with that, but why should people put faith in, I know it's early days yet of its operation, but why should people put faith in the, the Trade Technology Council? Because our interests uh, are at stake. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Chinese have not been uh, fulfilling the letter and the spirit of WTO and, uh, and have taken advantage of the openness of our societies. And we, both in Europe and the United States, um, I think have become aware of that. And we need to be a little careful, uh, a little more careful about what we share and where, and where we need to compete. Do you sense, though, that uh, in this new era of transatlantic relations, that post-Biden victory, that, that there are signs that the European Union, maybe for the first time, is, is trying to, uh, is succeeding in showing signs of more, uh, more independence and not just going uh, willy-nilly with whatever the Americans uh, tell them to do? We are dependent in the security sphere. I would say too, in, too dependent, because we are not even capable of handling alone uh, second and third tier threats in Libya or in uh, or in the East. Uh, I mean, U.S. role is irreplaceable in deterring Russia, but we as Europe should be able to uh, provide for our own security in our immediate neighborhood, particularly in the South. But uh, we are an equivalent superpower in most other areas, and particularly in the regulatory sphere, where... Uh, the rest of the world tends to adopt our standards because we are, you know, a very large and, and rich uh, market. And, you know, our European Parliament has not been captured yet by special interests, uh, the, the way uh, Congress has been by technology companies, for example. So, you know, the, if we are to regulate the, the cybersphere, for example, uh, the European Union is humanity's only hope. When it comes to relations with China, how sensible, how feasible uh, is it for there to be a, a common front, US and EU, uh, against China? Or should Europe be much more robust in defending its own, or defining, rather, should we say, its own stance vis-a-vis -vis China? The relationship with China will be much more complex than what the relationship between the West and the Soviet Union uh, used to be, because we are so interlinked. China is Europe's largest trading partner. So we, uh, and we need China for combating climate change. So we are going to collaborate where possible, compete where needed, but also confront where it's unavoidable. But will that cause tensions with the US or do you think do you have signs that based on your many no, I, meetings I, with, that they, they, I, are, they come to terms, Americans, with this, this kind of independent European position on China? No, I think the challenge is, different, is the opposite. Uh, the US having a military capacity and a system of alliance in the, alliances in the Far East uh, is, is drawing red lines, and we don't know on which side of Taiwan that red line will be. Mm. 
we don't have the capabilities and we are not legal allies of these fellow democracies. So to my mind, the real challenge is how to remain good allies with the United States without being drawn into their hypothetical war with China. Right. Uh, so when it comes to maybe moving this, uh, the context from you to, to NATO, is that a more appropriate forum for some kind of common view to be forged? Because that's obviously where the two groups come together. Uh, NATO has views on China because space and cyber are today domains of uh, possible conflict. But NATO, as the name suggests, and as the treaty says, <laughs> is a North Atlantic treaty organization. And I don't think there is any appetite at all in Europe to extend any guarantees uh, beyond the territory of current members. As a slight side issue then, as you know, it it's always seems to be the case, but certainly at the moment, uh, renewed efforts between the European Union and NATO to to cooperate and collaborate more more closely, the other opposite ends of the town of Brussels, but until quite recently, don't talk to each other very much. Do you see now clear signs and, and maybe encouraging signs that the two organizations will now in the future be working much more coherently and constructively and productively together? Yes, you're quite right. I was uh, very upset that, you know, in Afghanistan, where we could have had a, a much more robust developmental effort uh, in these provisional reconstruction teams, for example, if we could have had a, an arrangement whereby the EU provides the money and, the, uh, and NATO provides the protection. And it should be possible between organizations whose membership largely overlaps. But I understand there are now regular contacts between the Secretary General and the, and the High Representative uh, for Foreign Policy. Uh, there should be more coordination. We need each other and uh, local issues between some member states should not, uh, should not block what is in the, in the interest of, um, of both. Uh, so I'm a bit more hopeful on that one. Right. Well, in this final part of the conversation, right, yeah, I'd like to talk about the, the UK, the UK and Europe. You've already mentioned the enemies of the people headline in some of our popular press a few years ago. Um, you are known as a great Anglophile. You're studied in, in, uh, in the UK, you're an Oxford graduate. I think you're a contemporary of our Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and you're pretty friend, friends with him. Two-part question, if you like, or two-part discussion. First of all, how do you... How do you feel now that the UK has left the European Parliament for your own personal perspective? Well, you know, some British people never in their guts became uh, uh, advocates or, or, or really felt themselves to be members of the EU. You know, <laughs> when you were still a member, I, I always noticed arriving at Heathrow that there was this sign there, uh, arrivals from the European <laughs> Union, you know, whereas everywhere else it would say within the European <laughs> Union. So you, you haven't needed to change that sign since you've left. Uh, and, you know, it's taught me a lesson. I believed what I read in the British press in the 1980s, all those uh, fake stories, uh, all those lies about the European Union. I then learned how it actually works. Um, that the European directive is not imposed by bureaucrats on member states, for example, and I'm now determined not to let such lies pass in Poland um, because, because we know what they lead to. Um, look, um, 
the European Union was supposed to uh, have collapsed uh, after Britain uh, left. In fact, uh, it's more popular than ever on the continent and Europeans want a health union and a defense union. And Not, neither which could have happened with the UK still as members? No, I mean, Britain yeah. vetoed defense union for decades, in fact. Right. Um, you know, Britain was supposed to, to, to go global and to uh, export more. Well, for the first half of this year, uh, British exports to Germany have dropped by 11%, while German exports to the UK have risen uh, by 2.6%. Not a success. You know, just last week, there was a story in Belgium, in Brussels, you know, where we work, that uh, British citizens residing in Belgium have to get themselves Belgian driver's licenses. I mean, it's a silly bureaucratic thing. Mm. Uh, one of very many inconveniences to do with Brexit. But, you know, it looks to me like the Belgians have got back control. Right. Well, clearly the atmosphere at the moment is pretty toxic between the UK and the European Union. Let's not let's not try and, and sugarcoat that. But how, do you think this is going to be, this situation will, will last for quite some time? Or do you see... Uh, some some scope for uh, for optimism in the in the not too distant future in terms of relationships between the relationship between the two sides. I hope uh, reason prevails over the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol, which is the most explosive issue. Uh, and I, I I welcome the signs of uh, I mean the EU made a huge effort to uh, to exempt, and I understand eighty percent of goods will now flow without checks to Northern Ireland from Britain. You know, take yes for an answer. <laughs> um, and, and, and if we defang that issue, then I hope we can start talking on issues which, uh, which we wanted to include in our uh, treaty, uh, Britain was reluctant, on issues where we need each other. Um, access to databases of criminals or, 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 or third-party citizens. Uh, and issues to do with international security and defense, where the EU has very strong cards. And I hope we can find a way for Britain to be plugged into the European conversation about, uh, about security challenges. And then, and, and then hopefully the, uh, the atmospherics will improve too. Well, a final question then, Radek. As you were saying that in many ways on the back of Brexit, the European Union is sort of more popular than ever, including in your country. Um, and things like Defence Union and Health Union are starting to emerge in a way that would never seem possible if the UK has still been a, when the UK has still been a member. Having said that, though, is the EU, it's obviously going to change, has, is changing, has changed on the back of Brexit. Is the, is the EU weakened in any way on the back of the UK departure? Well, obviously, I mean, an important country contributing 14% to the EU budget has left. It's not a good thing. It's a, it's a, it's a failure uh, for all concerned. You know, you have a slogan in the UK, um, stronger together. Well, we were stronger together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe in a different context. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Radek Sikorsi, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.